Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that is currently walking through Dante's masterwork comedy. We are in Canto 11 of Purgatorio, the second canticle of comedy. We have come all the way through Inferno in only, I don't know, five billion episodes, and now we're somewhere lost in the wilds of Mount Purgatory itself. Well, at least we're on the first terrace of Purgatory proper, this terrace that has penitents walking under crushing boulders, well, squashed down walking. Are they walking? Yeah, they're walking, but I don't know how. With their knees rammed up into their chests, these giant boulders, the very stuff of art itself, on their backs as they walk around. And we just passed their big prayer, the prayer in which Dante, well, rather, what do we want to say, proudly, rather hubristically, rather belligerently, rather daringly, rather creatively, rather gorgeously rewrites the foundational prayer of Christian doctrine, the Paternoster, or the Our Father who art in heaven. We're going to come out of that prayer now and into another passage that kind of seems this canto. We had a seeming passage, a sewing passage in Canto 10. Now we've got another one in Canto 11. And this one also involves Virgil. So both of these little cracks or seams in the cantos are filled (laughs) with Virgil himself. This is my English translation of lines 25 through 45 of Purgatorio Canto 11. You can find it on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. You can read along and you can continue the conversation with me there. Let's get to it. Purgatorio Canto 11, lines 25 through 45. Praying like this for a good journey, both for them and for us, those shades walked along under their heavy burdens, similar to the sort that weigh us down in dreams. With disparate weights on them and variously anguished, they all trudged around the first of the terraces, cleansing off the dark mist of the world. If up there, good can always be said for the benefit of us... What then can be said and done for their benefit by those whose wills are well-rooted? Indeed, we should help them wash off the marks they carry with them so that pure in light they can finally exit to the starry wheels. Hey, so that justice and compassion may soon ungrieve you and make you able to move your wings and rise up as high as you desire, show us by what hand we can find the shortest route to the stairs. If there's more than one intersection, help us know which way is not quite so steep. For this one, who comes here with me, is still clothed in Adam's flesh. He wants to go up, contrary to his will. So right now, he's making slow progress. Oh, that last line is tough. I had to really contort myself to translate. He wants to go up contrary to his will. So right now he's making slow progress. The line itself is not slow progress. The line is actually condensed quite a bit, and it's difficult to render it even into medieval Italian, much less modern English. It's interesting that when Virgil says, that is Virgil talking, we'll talk about how we know that in a minute. Well, we know it because he says, this one who's with me is close in Adam's flesh, but we're talking about the curiosity of not naming Virgil in it in a minute. Anyway, 
when he says, you know, he did, wants to go up, but he's making slow progress. He actually condenses the line so the line flies past and we have to blow it out to understand it. Crazy. I want to look at a few curiosities in this passage and they arise out of the medieval Florentine. So three different curiosities, oh, maybe four. Then I want to look at this bit about praying for them and for us. And what does that mean, praying for them and for us? I want to pass from there on to this intermediate bit or this interstitial bit in which the poet steps out and seems to teach us the lesson that we should pray for those in purgatory. Why is that inserted here? It's so curious. Uh, I want to talk about Virgil, of course, in the passage and what Virgil's doing here and that problem of Virgil not being named, although he's talking. And then finally, (laughs) I'm going to come back and talk about art. Let's get to the passage. Okay, let's start with the curiosities, the things in the passage that are odd. A couple of these in the medieval Florentine, I said they were. And then one thing that's just an interesting poetic oddity or curiosity in the passage. It starts off in line 25, praying like this for a good journey, both for them and for us in my translation. And this is our first curiosity is that good journey, ramogna. What in the world does Ramogna mean? I've translated it as good journey, but you should know that this word has befuddled commentators for hundreds of years. Even the early commentators seem befuddled by this word. It could be, and I have no support for what I'm about to say to you, it could be that we're looking for a word that has been flubbed in copying. If that's the case, and again, there's no proof that's the case, but if that's the case, the mistake has persisted for 700 years of manuscript. But there's probably no truth to that because we know this word, Ramogna, from two other sources. In both cases, the usage of the word doesn't really give us a clue as to what it means here. Some scholars translate this back to a medieval Florentine word for rowing. And so the idea of a trip, a journey, or a way forward is included in the word. You can see I followed that tradition. You should just know I'm on shaky ground. And it's just nice occasionally to remind ourselves that we are on shaky ground. We're on a text that's 700 years old, and I know that a lot of us want to nail it down. And sometimes it's nice to be reminded that the ground is not exactly stable under our feet. That's the first curiosity. The second one occurs about nine lines down at the end of the third tercet of our passage, line 33, and it's this bit about being well-rooted. Let me read you the whole bit, the two lines together. What then can be said and done for their benefit by those whose wills are well-rooted? Buona radici. This is a really curious and interesting problem in the text. I've translated it as well-rooted, but you should know that you can also translate it as rooted in the good. Does it mean that those here should pray for those in purgatory who are rooted in the good, like they have chosen the good life and chosen to live good lives? Or does it mean that, in fact, the people who can pray best for the people in purgatory are those who are well-rooted, have their feet firmly on the ground, are really well-planted? 
if it's the latter, then it's interesting here because Dante is not well-rooted. He's in exile. Maybe he is momentarily rooted with various warlord patrons, but he himself is not really well-rooted. And I should just say that one other thing about this curiosity, that actually you can translate it both ways. And I think there may be a play in the medieval Florentine between rooted in the good and well-rooted. Here's a third curiosity. The passage says that we should pray for them to help them wash off the marks they carry with them so that, pure and light, they can finally exit to the starry wheels. This is a beautiful phrase, to the starry wheels. And I think that it's really important to stop for a moment and realize that the exit from purgatory is to the stars. That is Paradiso, and that is where we're headed. And right here, we get a glimpse of what's ahead of us, the cosmos wheeling around on its stars. Remember, this is a geocentric cosmos. So the stars and the planets are wheeling around the Earth. These people can exit to those gorgeous starry wheels, Stellate Ruote. It's such a lovely phrase, even the way it has an implicit rhyme, Stellate Ruote. I know there's uh, agreement in Italian, of course, but it also has a nice rhythm to it. Stellate ruote. We can feel that rhythm set in in those last two words. It's really beautifully said, and this is typical Dantean technique. Remember the times in Inferno when we got glimpses of purgatory. For example, in Ulysses' speech, his long monologue, in which he basically says, you know, we came up to this mountain and the whirlpool took us down, and we talked about how... We we get this preliminary glimpse of what's ahead of us in Inferno. And here in Purgatorio, we're getting these anticipatory glimpses of what's ahead of us. And finally, one last curiosity without just making this thing bedeviled entirely. When Virgil says, you know, hey, so that justice and compassion may soon aggrieve you and make you able to move your wings and rise up high as you desire. I just want to call your attention that this is a really nice poetic device on Dante's part to mention their wings here, that the penitence will eventually fly up because in Canto 10 at line 125, we had that big bit about how humans can be redeemed as the angelic butterfly that soars up to justice. So Dante is clearly in touch with the metaphors of his own language, the metaphors of his own poetics. He's tying things back together poetically across the spaces of the cantos, and that makes for a very satisfying artistic read. Okay, enough with the curiosities, and now on to the interpretation. Praying like this for a good journey, the passage starts out, both for them and for us. And (laughs) here's the problem. What in the world does that mean. All right, let's go back. If you remember when they gave their expansion of the Paternoster or the prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, they ended it at a place that we said is not the traditional ending in the Gospel of Matthew, but that ending is often cut off in the Paternoster. And by now, most people who say the rosary don't add the for thine is the kingdom, the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Most people don't add that tag onto the end of it. So the question is, what are they praying? In their prayer, they lopped off the ending from the gospel and they said, 
this last prayer, we don't pray for ourselves, but for those we've left behind. And the question from that bit in line 22 is, what last prayer? Do they mean this whole Our Father? They could mean this whole expanded Paternoster. Or do they only mean that last little tercet about strengthen our wills which give way and don't hand us over to the evil one? They may mean just that last little tercet, those last three lines of that prayer, because those in purgatory can't be handed over to the evil one. Even if these can't be tempted, and the last little bit of that prayer is for the living, what are they actually doing as they're praying? This is a bigger question than you might think. Generally, the Paternoster is divided into two parts. That is the heavenly part, which is, you know, hallowed be thy name and those early parts. And then it comes to the requests for this terrestrial existence. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into invitation, but deliver us from all evil or from the evil one, if we take Dante's wording of it. And generally, those last four things are seen as terrestrial requests for life on earth. It could be that when these penitents say this last prayer, they're referring to all four of those. I doubt it. And here's why it's a little more complicated than it might first appear. At the end, in that last tercet, it basically says, you know, um, don't test us. Don't test our strength because it gives away or it's, it's uh, subdued so very easily. While we might say that's about people back on Earth, surely these penitents under their boulders need strengthening. Surely they themselves need more strength to carry these boulders. So that does seem a bit about them. And when it says which our strength which gives away so easily, after all, these guys are crushed under boulders, their whole prayer is kind of about them. I mean, that prayer is directed toward the prideful. There's so many places that it makes mention, essentially, of the humiliation of those praying. We can't do it under our own steam. We can't get your kingdom under our own ingenuity. Our strength gives way. I mean, this seems genuinely and interestingly focused toward an answer to the sin of pride. That is, humbling yourself and saying, I can't do it on my own. But that still is leaving us with a question. Why do the penitents pray at all? Why do people in the good part of the afterlife, post-gate of purgatory, need to pray? Who are they praying to? They're already in communion with God. They may be purgating their sins. Do they need to ask? God for something. And this becomes incredibly important when you realize that Aquinas himself was adamant that the souls in purgatory cannot pray for the living. Tease this out for a minute. What are these in purgatory doing praying? And why are they praying for the living? And why is Dante running against St. Thomas Aquinas? Again, this prayer seems uniquely, uh, what, fashioned for the prideful? And yet again, 
why would the prideful need to pray? Aren't they already somehow in communication with God as having passed through the gate of purgatory? This is all very curious, and Dante doesn't make it any easier on us by saying, praying like this for a good journey, there's that weird word that's not really translatable, both for them and for us. So Dante seems to say that this prayer is dual-focused. If Dante says that, we're going to have to say that they really are praying in purgatory, and a lot of Dante scholars don't want to say that because of Aquinas and because of the theological conundrum of having those who have already passed beyond the gate of purgatory have to ask God to forgive them for something. How is this possible? Aren't they getting rid of an inclination of the soul, but they have already been forgiven? All very curious, and perhaps we're making a mountain out of a molehill, but Dante, by saying, praying both for them and for us, seems to want us to make a mountain out of a molehill. Let's turn from this big, giant question, which I really haven't answered. I've just made a mess out of it. Let's turn from this to the inset bit from the poet. These penitents are walking along under their disparate weights and they're variously anguished and they're trudging along, cleansing off the dark mist of the world. It's a very interesting phrase there. It's a single word in the medieval Florentine, dark mist. And it's an interesting word because you have to think about pride and pride as both a darkness and a mist at the same time, especially for these guys. But then it seems like the passage jumps to us and the poet talks to us. It goes on, if up there good can always be said for the benefit of us, us, who's us? Virgil and Dante? No. I think this is for us, the readers. What then can be said and done for their benefit by those whose wills are well-rooted? So, hey, if they can pray for us, what can we do for them? Indeed, we should help them wash off the marks they carry with them. They don't really carry marks or stains. They're really carrying boulders, but all right. This seems more about all of purgatory than about just these guys. This seems an insertion here to tell us that all the people we're going to meet up on the terraces of purgatory, we should pray for all of them with all of their weird marks or stains that they carry, but then carry does seem to localize it here, carry with them here on this terrace, that is, so that pure and light they can finally exit to the uh, starry wheels. This inset is almost an address to the reader. It doesn't have the vocative reader, do this, reader, pay attention to that, as we've seen in the past. And so it's never counted as a direct address to the reader. But this is really close. I mean, you can see that the word reader could come right in here for various reasons. And because this is clearly about us and what our duty is to the penitents on purgatory. And my question is, what's Dante's point? It's difficult to know because it interrupts the flow, the narrative flow. It interrupts it so starkly that it's kind of startling. It takes us back. We're like, wait, oh, no, we're not up on Mount Purgatory. We're back here on Earth and we're walking around Italy and we're thinking about the things we can do for the penitents on Purgatory. My answer is that Dante is very likely feeling the weight of his material. And the question is, and I'm posing this question, which I don't find in the text, but I think is implied in the text, how does Dante balance plot and thematics? Is this hesitancy a function of our poet's own relationship with pride? Okay, let me explain both of those two things. One, 
Dante is now in a different part of the afterlife, of course, the poet, and he's describing a different part of the afterlife, and he's feeling the need now to educate us in what our duties are. And so the thematics are becoming, maybe thematics isn't even strong enough a word, the sermonizing is becoming louder. I think at this point in comedy, Dante doesn't have an easy way to balance sermonizing and narrative. He doesn't have an easy way to, go back to my old words, to balance thematics and plot. And so we seem to get these weird invectives, these weird asides like this, these lessons that we're supposed to learn as this is, and they seem to be interrupting the narrative flow. This could be because the poet is hesitant or not yet adept at balancing the very very difficult problem of thematics and plot. It could also be that the very Terrace of Pride itself is making Dante uncomfortable. <laughs> that is the poet who is willing to rewrite the Paternoster, the Lord's Prayer, is finding himself a little decentered right here. And so we get that invective in Canto 10. We get this weird plot interruption here in which he seems suddenly to be talking to me back on earth about what my duty is. It could be that this Terrace of Pride is niggling Dante a bit, and we will discover on down the road, and when we get to that next Terrace of Purgatory, we will discover that Dante himself says that he's going to have to spend a lot of time on the Terrace of Pride. Perhaps there's a way in which we can even see the hesitancy working out in our poet as he's trying to craft the story while also being at a place mm, where he might feel his guilt as a poet weighing down upon him. That's a lot to say, and it's not actually provable, but it's just so interesting that we keep having this, uh, what do I want to say, hurdy-gurdy motion between forward momentum in the plot and then stepping back and addressing me from behind the screen. (laughs) I pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. That's what I feel like. You know, the the Wizard of Oz is up there blowing fire and smoke and screaming at me. And then there's the guy behind the curtain that every once in a while walks out and says something to me. And unfortunately, I don't often want to pay attention to the man behind the curtain. But this seems to be a moment in which Dante forces himself as the poet and prophet and truth teller and sermonizer onto us. And then out steps Virgil. It's so weird. We get this bit of the pilgrim's experience seeing these guys trudging along, praying for them and for us. Then we get the poet who inserts himself into the text and interrupts the flow, almost disconcerting us. And then we get these last nine lines in which Virgil speaks, and we don't really know at first who this is. Hey, it says, so the justice and compassion may soon ungrieve you and make you able to move your wings and rise up as high as you desire. If you just stopped right there, you wouldn't really know who's talking. Is that the pilgrim? Is that one of the people under the rocks talking? I mean, it could be. I mean, is he is one of the guys under the rocks saying this to Virgil and Dante? You know, hey, so that, you know, you can go on up high. And then, you know, we finally realize here it must be Virgil or Dante. Show us by what hand we can find the shortest route to the stairs. Okay, that can't be one of the guys under the rocks. 
That's got to be either Virgil or Dante talking because they're the only ones interested right now in the stairs. If there's more than one intersection, it's interesting that these stairs are seen as crossroads or intersections into these terraces. Help us know which way is not quite so steep. For this one who comes here with me, still unsure who's talking, is still clothed in Adam's flesh. Oh, now we know. It's Virgil. It's got to be Virgil. He wants to go up, contrary to his will. So right now he's making slow progress. Virgil's inset here is not marked, but is implied. Now, in fact, in the next tercet, in the next episode of this podcast, we're going to have a reference to Virgil having spoken. But again, Virgil won't be named, which is really weird. In fact, it won't even say my leader. Instead, it'll say the one that I follow said these things. So Virgil is spoken of paraphrastically even in the next tercet. It's just odd that we're, <laughs> poor Virgil, he's not given much space here. So what's going on? Well, it's an interesting omission, Virgil's mark, his quotation marks or his dialogue mark here. It's an interesting omission, which again, decenters us in some way. Just as the poet's voice in the previous six lines decentered us, this one makes us a little uncomfortable at first. Like, wait, what? There's a part of me that wants to say part of what's going on here is, um, uh, I'm going to say this and it's too bald, it's too flat, it's too straightforward, but I'm going to say it anyway. Dante the poet is trying to humble us. Dante the Poet is trying to show us that we're not in control. And so he is actually humbling us by continuing to decenter us on the Terrace of Pride. And I don't know. I kind of like that idea. But again, I don't know that I can take that one. That's another one I don't know that I can take to the bank. Or we can say for sure here that Virgil seems more interested in Dante's well-being than he is in any moral or theological instruction. The poet has just given us this big theological instruction about how we should be well-rooted in the good and that we should pray for the penitents. And then Virgil steps in, and is he interested in any of that theological discourse or moral discourse? No, he's not. He seems to be interested in the pilgrim's weariness. He's trudging along here, still in a body, clothed in Adam's flesh. Virgil doesn't seem like our old Virgil. He's not the Virgil who's going to explain everything to us. Instead, he seems much more paternal here in these early bits of Purgatorio. Now, just I'm telling you this because it's going to change right ahead of us, and we're going to get our old Virgil back, the big explainer, and he's about to appear back on the scene, this other side of Virgil's personality where he tells us what it all means. For now, it seems as if Virgil is much more interested in the pilgrim's well-being. And finally, I love this wording that Virgil says, that it may ungrieve you, vi disgrievi. This is such a wild phrasing, so that it may disgrieve you, ungrieve you. It's so gorgeous. I just want to stop and say you should think about how does pride connect to grief? How does pride connect? A loss. The proud are put under rocks because I think the implication is that they're so high and mighty, though so full of themselves, that if they weren't put under rocks, they would just float up to heaven on their own. You know, the proud would get to the first terrace and go, I don't need this, and just keep walking on up because they're the proud. And so they would just float up to heaven or walk up to heaven on their own, based on their own high estimate of themselves. And so they're pushed down by these rocks. But just for a second, let's think about how does pride lead to grief, to loss, to 
emptiness. Virgil says basically you're going to get ungrieved, disgrieved when you rise up. Pride has somehow grieved you or led you to grief. And just think about what grief is. Think about the loss. Think about the emotional space of grief. And think about that the way that pride may be so heavy that in fact it is an expression of a kind of personal grief. That's really interesting emotional space. And it's afforded to us by Virgil's strange locution here. Vi discrievi. And now back to the beginning. Because <laughs> we're going to talk about art. When the passage opens, it says, Praying like this for a good journey, both for them and for us, though shades walked along under the heavy burdens, similar to the sort that weigh us down in dreams. You really didn't think I was going to leave that alone, did you? Weigh us down in dreams. This is a tie back to art and the imagination, particularly in the way that medievals thought about dreams as a kind of artistic or visionary experience. We know these figures under their boulders are not only carrying the raw materials of art, but they themselves look like the carvings under pediments, columns, and roofs. We know that we know who they are because we've seen a piece of art and they look like art. And here, we're being told that this bit of the heavy burdens that are weighing them down is analogous to the creative expression of consciousness, dreams, especially in a medieval context. Now, I know medievals can't use words like consciousness, but still and nonetheless, this idea that somehow this expression of pride is connected to dreaming and that somehow dreams are part of our pride and that, in fact, ha, huh, here we go, for Dante, is imaginative space, particularly as understood by medievals, dreams and imaginative space, is imaginative space particularly subject to the problem of pride. The dreams weigh us down. They do. Well, I mean, admittedly, some of my dreams do, but it's not the general way I think about dreams. And if you said to me, I had a dream last night, the first thing I wouldn't think of is that you're being pressed down to the ground. So imaginative space is here in a medieval context being connected to pride in some way. And the whole thing is wrapping up into an expression of art and the limits of art and also the way art pushes those limits, pushes them far enough that it can rewrite the Paternoster. One more time, this curious passage, Purgatorio, Canto 11, lines 25 through 45. Praying like this for a good journey, both for them and for us, those shades walked along under their heavy burdens, similar to the sort that weigh us down in dreams. With disparate weights on them and variously anguished, they all trudged around the first of the terraces, cleansing off the dark mist of the world. If up there, good can always be said for the benefit of us, what then can be said and done for their benefit by those whose wills are well-rooted? Indeed, we should help them wash off the marks they carry with them so that pure and light they can finally exit to the starry wheels. Hey, so that justice and compassion may soon ungrieve you and make you able to move your wings and rise up as high as you desire, show us by what hand we can find the shortest route to the stairs. If there's more than one intersection, help us know which way is not quite so steep. 
for this one who comes here with me is still clothed in Adam's flesh. He wants to go up contrary to his will. So right now he's making slow progress. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante. Thanks for supporting it. Thanks for you who have become patrons of the podcast and underwritten it financially. I very much appreciate that. If you're interested in also helping with editing, hosting, and licensing fees, streaming fees, the whole ball of wax that this is, there's a PayPal link on my website, markscarborough.com, or right in this player where you can donate money. Let me also say that you can rate this podcast and even write a review of it in whatever language and on whatever platform you find this podcast that would help a great deal thanks for that and otherwise we're going to trudge on with these guys under the boulders in fact next time we're going to meet the first of them on the next episode of walking with dante i'm mark scarborough and uh, brace yourself because your back's going to need to carry a lot